production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. My name is Marlon Primes, and I'm the president of the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association. We are proud to partner with the City Club to present the annual Law Day Forum. This year, we are delighted to welcome Bruce D. Brown, who is the executive director of the Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press. Every year, Law Day is marked around our nation on May 1st. And every year we feature a city club forum on a topic related to the rule of law as is practiced here in the United States. This year, our colleagues at the American Bar Association selected the 2019 Law Day theme, Free Speech, Free Press, Free Society. President Dwight D. Eisenhower created Law Day in 1958, as he certainly recognized from his prior service as a Supreme Allied Commander in Europe during World War II the societies can break down if they're not centered on the rule of law. President Eisenhower also understood that the right of free speech and a free press is what distinguishes the United States from other countries around the world, and it distinguished our nation from the countries we fought during World War II. It is a foundation of our democracy. Yet, it is one that many believe is under threat as newspapers diminish and as journalists increasingly face death threats, detention, and censorship. This, there's arguably no better speaker to address the 2019 Law Day topic than today's speaker, Bruce D. Brown. Mr. Brown, who is a lawyer and a former journalist, is executive director of the Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press, a nonprofit organization that protects First Amendment freedoms and news gathering rights of journalists. In the last four decades, the Reporters Committee has played a role in virtually every significant press freedom case that has come before the United States Supreme Court, as well as hundreds of cases in federal and state courts that affect press rights. Mr. Brown joined the Reporters Committee in 2012 after serving as a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Baker Hostetler, which is founded in Cleveland and one of our largest firms in Northeastern Ohio. Mr. Brown is a former lecturer at the University of Virginia Law School, where he co-directed the First Amendment Clinic, and he's a former adjunct faculty member and Georgetown University's master's program in professional studies in journalism. He began his career as a federal court reporter for the Legal Times and as a newsroom assistant to the legendary journalist David Broder at the Washington Post. Mr. Brown holds a bachelor's degree from Stanford University, a master's degree from Harvard University, and a Juris Doctorate degree from Yale Law School where he was a Mellon Fellow in the Humanities. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club and the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association, please join me now uh, in giving a warm welcome to our 2019 Law Day speaker, Mr. Bruce Brown. Thank you, Marlon, and um, uh, thank you to Dan and to Stephanie 
and to everyone at the City Club who has made me uh, feel very welcome here today. And uh, it is a true honor to be here in front of you. Uh, Marlon just mentioned that I had worked for David Broder for a couple of years after college and for Dan to take me down the hall and to see the picture of David here, um, extremely meaningful to me. He was a big, big part of my life. And um, as Marlon said, I had been a lawyer um, at Baker Hostetler for nearly 15 years um, in the DC office and was very fortunate in those years to work with Baker's legendary uh, First Amendment team. Uh, Bruce Sanford ran the group uh, in Washington and I've never had a smarter boss or been in the trenches with a better writer. Um, and he is really very pleased too to know that I'm here today. Uh, let me take just a few minutes um, before I get into it to talk a little bit about the work of the Reporters Committee. As Marlon said, we, you know, we've been at this for decades. We're almost 50 years old. Uh, we are the only um, nonprofit with a nationwide footprint uh, that is focused exclusively on protecting the news gathering and First Amendment rights of journalists. And we do that in a number of ways. Uh, we file amicus briefs in federal and state courts around the country. Um, we have our own litigation practice now that we started about four or five years ago that was in response to the contraction around the country uh, in the economics of newsrooms. And we recognized that reporters needed sometimes more than just an amicus brief in a case or a free legal guide online or a hotline, which we also uh, offer, but they needed actual representation. And so the Reporters Committee uh, now has, at any given time, say 25 to 30 cases around the country, uh, many in the FOIA and public records areas. Uh, but we have done defamation defense. We've done subpoena defense. And um, that is a, a huge growing part of our work right now. And um, we just uh, received a very generous $10 million gift from the Knight Foundation uh, to build out this work even more in state and local jurisdictions around the country. Um, in Ohio, uh, we do you know, quite a bit of work here. Um, Scripps has been a longtime uh, partner of ours, and we're um, soon to announce some exciting new programming with them. And even closer to home, uh, your own Susan Goldberg, who had been editor of The Plain Dealer uh, for many years, is on our executive committee and has been a big part of my life as executive director of the committee. Um, uh, and I didn't want to forget to acknowledge my friend Andy Geronimo, who's here from Case Western. Uh, Andy, it's another part of our work. Um, Andy uh, is part of a network of clinicians around the country doing First Amendment work at law schools. Um, and, and we, in conjunction with Andy and others, have been assembling a network of these programs uh, to enable them to better share resources and devise joint litigation strategies. And it's also a program that has some exciting news um, coming up soon about some new resources uh, coming to this network. So you do feel when you're in this field that um, funders are stepping up uh, to the moment we're in and that there are a number of ways in which new resources are getting out there to help uh, reporters and the work they do informing the public. Uh, I think I've managed to find a couple of subjects um, in this crazy saturated environment we're in uh, involving the press um, that haven't received quite as much attention. Uh, the first one I'm going to speak about is the record of the Trump-appointed federal judges on libel law. <coughs> and the second concerns uh, the other indictment that became public 
the day that Julian Assange um, was indicted last month, and of course his indictment drove um, the news, but there was another indictment that day that is equally important, I think, um, towards press freedom. Uh, for all of the chaos, the Trump administration has been indisputably successful on one front, judges. Not only has it managed to push nominations through at a swift clip, the Senate made it easier just last month to move federal judges onto the bench even faster. Most of the seats President Trump has filled have been those vacated by Republican-appointed judges, but as time goes on, he will inevitably be filling more Democratic seats. Although it has only been slightly more than two years since the inauguration, it's not surprising that many of these Trump-appointed judges appear to be issuing decisions consistent with the ideological inclinations of this administration. Cases involving issues like employment discrimination, reproductive rights, the Second Amendment, and even First Amendment issues like lobbying, registration, or campaign finance law have seen the Trump-appointed judges generally in sync with the president and his party. There is one area, however, where there is little to no indication that the Trump-appointed judges are following the president. And that is his repeated promise to, quote unquote, open up the libel laws. Although Justice Clarence Thomas recently made news by echoing comments from the late Justice Scalia, critical of the constitutionalization of libel law in New York Times versus Sullivan, the case, of course, that required public officials and public figures to prove a defamation claim through actual malice. No Trump-appointed judge thus far has done the same. Take, for instance, Judges Don Willett and Andy Oldham on the Fifth Circuit. While both voted to permit a Louisiana anti-choice law to go into effect despite its similarity to a Texas law that the Supreme Court had struck down three years before, uh, as a Texas Supreme Court justice, Judge Willett heard several high-profile defamation cases. Although he expressed some sympathy with defamation plaintiffs, he applied the actual malice standard faithfully. And as for Judge Oldham, he was actually the head lawyer for Governor Greg Abbott when Abbott signed a bill codifying common law protections for reporters who rely on a source's allegations that subsequently proved to be false. Similarly, Judge David Strass on the Eighth Circuit has compiled a generally conservative law and order record so far, but has offered some strong dissents in First Amendment cases. While on the Minnesota Supreme Court, for instance, he dissented in a case upholding a quote-unquote police defamation law that criminalized the making of a false claim of police misconduct. The majority narrowed the scope of the statute and found it constitutional as applied, noting that the intent requirement in the law was more vigorous than actual malice. But Strass wrote a dissent arguing that under the plain terms of the law, it violated the First Amendment. District court judges have been even more explicit in decisions involving actual malice. The best example is a case out of the federal district court in my hometown, Washington, D.C., in a case called Fairbanks versus Roller. Fairbanks, a conservative activist, had sued a reporter for tweeting a picture of her at the White House making an A-OK -okay 
hand sign with the caption, quote, just two people doing a white power hand gesture. Judge Trevor McFadden, a Trump appointee, federal district court judge, dismissed the case under the actual malice standard. McFadden quoted Sullivan in the first paragraph, writing, quote, the First Amendment requires that Ms. Fairbanks' claim be considered against the background of a profound national commitment to the freedom of the speech and especially of political speech, which is essential to the security of the republic. Heading next to the Supreme Court, neither Justice Kavanaugh nor Justice Gorsuch has given any indication that they would follow Justice Thomas on New York Times versus Sullivan. First, Kavanaugh appears to be a strong believer in First Amendment protections against specious defamation suits like the ones the president has famously threatened and brought against his critics. In a significant libel case at the DC Circuit, Judge Kavanaugh stated that, quote, to preserve First Amendment freedoms for reporters, commentators, bloggers, and tweeters, courts must expeditiously weed out unmeritorious defamation suits. When Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas's son sued Foreign Affairs magazine for posing and pursuing the question of whether he had enriched himself off his father's position, Judge Kavanaugh dismissed the appeal. Quote, questions are questions, Judge Kavanaugh wrote. They appear all the time in news reports and on blogs and tweets and on cable shows. Indeed, Judge Kavanaugh held that to preserve press freedom, a question like, quote, is the president a crook, close quote, will almost never be libelous. To expand libel law to questions that imply wrongdoing, Judge Kavanaugh said, would, quote, ensnare a substantial amount of speech that is essential to the marketplace of ideas. Indeed, Judge Kavanaugh shows no appetite for the president's flirtations with outright censorship, such as his call for revoking broadcast licenses as punishment for critical coverage or the administration's move to investigate quote-unquote anti-conservative bias at Facebook or Google. By contrast, Kavanaugh has written expansively in favor of unfettered editorial independence for television stations, newspapers, and most recently, internet companies. In a dissent from the DC Circuit's decision to uphold the Obama administration's net neutrality rules, Kavanaugh wrote that the rules, which require ISPs to treat all data on their networks equally, violated the First Amendment because an internet provider makes editorial decisions no different than a newspaper. He went on to write with great flourish, the government may not tell internet service providers how to exercise their editorial discretion about what content to carry or favor any more than the government can tell Amazon or politics and prose what books to promote, or tell the Washington Post or the Drudge Report what columns to carry, or tell ESPN or the NFL Network what games to show, or tell how appealing or bench memos what articles to feature, or tell Twitter or YouTube what videos to post, or tell Facebook or Google what content to favor. His dissent has been criticized, of course, by net neutrality advocates, but the First Amendment position he stakes out could provide protection from government coercion 
in other cases that might come before the Supreme Court. As for Justice Gorsuch, he was questioned about the actual malice standard during his confirmation hearing. Though hesitant to speak about other precedential cases, he went on at great length about the Sullivan decision and the importance of its holding, and even threw in uh, a folksy comment, quote, that's been the law of the land, gosh, for 50, 60 years. As a judge on the Tenth Circuit, Gorsuch has also deployed the First Amendment in libel cases. He wrote a decision finding that plaintiffs with already bad reputations face an uphill battle in defamation cases because libel law is, quote, about protecting a good reputation, honestly earned, close quote, and added that immaterial falsehoods cannot state a libel claim. And he expressly recognized the, quote, unquote, constitutional patna of libel law following Sullivan. To be sure, lifetime appointments rightly give justices and judges breathing room to reconsider old decisions. But our survey of the 97 Article III judges appointed by President Trump, including law review articles and service outside the judiciary, there's just no indication that we have seen that any of them are chomping at the bit to follow the president into a new world of constitutionally unrestrained libel litigation brought by public officials. So what to make of this? I would argue that it shows that even at a time of extraordinary pressure on the press, the protections of Sullivan are deeply, deeply ingrained in our jurisprudence. It does not mean that press advocates do not have more to do to win the hearts and minds in the public about the importance of these freedoms, but it does suggest a general consensus among those who take the federal bench, regardless of political party, around protecting the great precedence of free speech in the country. The second subject I would like to uh, briefly turn to before uh, we have some questions, which I look, look forward to, um, is the crazy day last month um, when the Julian Assange indictment came down. And for, for those of us in the press freedom world, this was anticipated for years. Um, we, we did fire drills uh, on how to respond, uh, depending upon what, what the indictment might say. Of course, the day that it happened, our comms director was on the train to New York and out of pocket, and we couldn't find our, you know, our board chair, David Boardman, wasn't immediately available, and so all the planning was for not, and, and, um, uh, and of course, as it turned out, the indictment looked a little different than we, we thought it might, which, um, which I can get to. Um, uh, but that wasn't the only case with implications for press freedom that was announced on, on April 11. Uh, buried below the fold, uh, the Justice Department re revealed uh, that it was charging high-powered Washington lawyer and former Obama White House counsel, Greg Craig, with violations of the uh, previously arcane uh, Foreign, Agent, Foreign Agents Registration Act, um, or FARA. The Assange and Craig indictments uh, offer complementary lessons, I think, on how federal laws can be used or misused against the press. As the New York Times editorial board put it, um, the administration has begun well by charging Mr. Assange uh, with an indisputable crime. Um, and the indictment against Mr. Craig alleges that he lied about conduct uh, that would have triggered registration requirements under FARA. Um, uh, and both of these cases um, 
demonstrate, as I'm going to show, how much of what we rely on as press freedom advocates uh, is not hard and fast constitutional protections, uh, but the discretion of federal prosecutors, I'm looking at Marlin now, um, um, and the trust of the, of the public. Um, so much could go wrong if either of these safeguards were to head off the rails. With Assange, for instance, the indictment, um, as I said, does charge him with an indisputable crime, that he actively aided Chelsea Manning in efforts to crack a password to a classified government network in a war zone. Um, even those like the Reporters Committee, who strongly support reforms to the relevant federal anti-hacking law, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, would concede that cracking a password is hacking. And the law was passed um, uh, precisely to protect uh, against the hacking of these kinds of sensitive government systems. Uh, but were one to take away that singular fact that Assange had allegedly agreed to help crack the password, or were there new charges uh, against Assange based on publication? Again, there's this very important distinction in that case that the charge, the indictment, was not about publication, that it was about the conduct um, in the, uh, uh, the attempts to hack the password. Then the case likely would present a serious problem uh, for press freedom. But the lesser-watched Greg Craig indictment also poses similar concerns. Congress passed FARA back in 1938 to unmask Nazi propaganda and lobbying efforts, but it has been rarely used in the decades since. That all changed in 2017 with the Russia investigation, particularly in connection with individuals like Paul Manafort and Michael Flynn, who were secretly acting as foreign agents uh, in the legal sense of the term. The law requires anyone who is either propagandizing or lobbying for a foreign power to register with the Justice Department. Although the law has a carve-out for bona fide news organizations, that exception is relatively narrow. Consequently, foreign-directed news outlets like Russia Today, Sputnik, and China Daily are all registered. Additionally, the law prohibits individuals from directing public relations campaigns on behalf of foreign interests without registering. And that's where Mr. Craig allegedly got jammed up. The Justice Department had questioned him about work he had done alongside Manafort for the now disgraced Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych. Specifically, Craig's law firm, Skadden Arps, had prepared a report that human rights advocates said whitewashed Yanukovych's prosecution of his chief political rival. The report was ostensibly independent, but according to the Justice Department, had been prepared at the direction of Yanukovych and secretly financed by a wealthy private citizen in the Ukraine. The government alleges that Craig tried to avoid registering under FARA to preserve the appearance of independence by preventing those facts from coming to light. What's key about the case is that it all comes down to whether he actually directed the public relations strategy. Uh, a lawyer who merely retains a PR firm doesn't need to register. And of course, DC lawyers are always retaining public relations and lobbying firms uh, around all kinds of engagements. But in Craig's case, the indictment centers around not a fair violation per se, but on whether he lied about his role in the PR rollout of the report. He had said that any communications between him and reporters, and this is where the journalists come in, covering the report were reactive 
and uh, meant to only correct misinformation. The government, by contrast, has alleged a number of facts suggesting that Craig was pulling the strings. Uh, and yet, as with Assange, the devil will always be in the details. The sheer breadth of this statute, uh, of FARA, triggered as it is by interactions between the press and the public, um, means that it remains an extremely potent tool of possible abuse impacting First Amendment freedoms. So to bring it all together, while we would all, I'm sure, embrace hard and fast statutory and legal protections for the press, such as a federal shield law, uh, protecting reporters from having to identify confidential sources, or an amendment to the Espionage Act um, to ensure that it would never be used against a reporter uh, for the mere publication of classified information. And as many of you know in this room, uh, that World War II, World War I era statute, excuse me, uh, is hopelessly vague on that point um, and a subject of great anxiety, therefore, for press advocates. Um, but these kind of hard and fast statutory protections still feel uh, a long way off. And the reality on the ground is that our current protections are dependent so much, uh, first, on the support and trust of the public, uh, and two, the attendant sense among law enforcement officials that going after the press or using federal laws to restrict the flow of information to the public is simply a bleeding migraine for them that is not worth the effort. Uh, some may call those uh, very thin reeds, um, but you have to dance with the reeds you, that brung you. And for those of us <laughs> in the press advocacy world, we recognize that you know, that is the dance we're dancing. Um, uh, both the indictments in, in the Craig and Assange case, um, as I said, are, uh, the allegations do come together around um, uh, what the Justice Department would argue are crimes right at the center of what those statutory schemes are about. Um, but they also arise out of extremely expansive federal laws. And they are not the only federal laws um, that fall into this category. And to give you another example in, the, in just a few minutes before I wrap up, um, when I was at Baker Hostetler, we defended a case that the SEC had brought against a newsletter publisher uh, under Section 10b-5. And uh, if any of you have practiced security laws, um, you know, you'll know the, uh, the simplicity of that rule. It you know, very simply states that um, uh, liability can be found about an untrue statement of fact, material fact, in connection with the purchase or sale of any security. Uh, in connection with purchase or sale of any security. In our case, the newsletter publisher had not traded any security, um, and certainly not the security that was the subject of uh, the civil complaint against them. Um, but the government argued for an extremely expansive interpretation of Rule 10b-5 and said that it could be used um, against essentially pure speech. And um, we pointed out that meant not only our newsletter publisher, but the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, um, right? Any publication that covers the markets, uh, securities, um, would then be subject to um, uh, 10b-5 
uh, and therefore um, the de facto uh, censorship from the SEC. Um, we did not prevail at the Fourth Circuit. Um, on the other hand, um, in the years since that case was litigated, uh, I'm not aware that the SEC um, has used that tool again. Um, it has the power to do so now. And what we uh, would hope is that it would, it would never do so gratuitously. Um, and all of these cases, therefore, show um, how important prosecutorial forbearance is as you know, maybe even the key guard, uh, key, excuse me, key safeguard of, of press freedom. Um, but federal laws, of course, are so broad that if that safeguard disappears, um, these laws could be misused against the press in a way that deprives the public of the information it needs to govern itself in uh, what is an increasingly complex world. And finally, uh, just to sum up, I've uh, often been asked what it is like to defend the press and the public's right to information in these extremely challenging times. And um, my search for the right words uh, recently found a voice in um, Adam Gopnik's majestic essay recently published in The New Yorker uh, on the legacy uh, and, and ultimate failure, uh, profound failures of Reconstruction. Um, and he wrote, quote, <clears throat> when the right side loses, uh, it does not always mean that the truth has not been heard. We are too inclined to let what happens next determine the meaning of what happened before. And to suppose that the real meaning of Reconstruction was its repudiation. It's a style of thought that sees the true meaning of dinner as the next day's hunger and the real meaning of life as death. And yet, yesterday's good deeds remain good, even if today's bad ones occlude them. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. This transition to the Q&A in no way should indicate that the real meaning of the speech was the Q&A. <laughs> I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here at the City Club, and today we're enjoying our 2019 Law, Law Day Forum with Bruce D. Brown, Executive Director of the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. We are, as I said, about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, you can tweet it at the City Club, and our team will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are content coordinator Bliss Davis. Oh, just the one, just the one microphone today, and it's just Bliss Davis, and she's ready to go. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for coming. Um, despite the horrible rhetoric uh, coming out of President Trump's mouth against the press and freedom of the press, to my knowledge, the Trump Justice Department has not indicted uh, any reporters, but the Obama administration did uh, under Eric Holder. And could you comment on, uh, at least, I, I'm, I'm so sorry to be a little vague here, but I remember the particular case involving a reporter from the New York Times who was indicted, which I believe, and I think you may have alluded to this, resulted in a Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals decision essentially against uh, that reporter. Uh, and then charges were dropped, but that remains as a precedent. So could you comment on that? Sure, and thanks for the question. I say with great relief, Ryan just walked out of the room, so <laughs> I'm not gonna be nervous about um, you know, getting flummoxed with the tough one from her. Um, uh, although I'm going to see if she goes to law school and be ready to offer her a job uh, down the road. 
Um, so th the question has to do with the, um, uh, the Obama administration's uh, policies uh, around reporters compared to the Trump administration policies around reporters. And um, the Obama administration uh, did bring a record number of leaks in investigations. And those investigations uh, did ensnare a number of reporters. Um, no, no reporters were the, were the subject of the investigation, right? The, the, the uh, targets were the government officials who um, allegedly were involved in the leaking activity. Um, the reporters were sought uh, for their evidence and testimony. And um, the questioner alluded specifically to um, the case involving Jim Risen, uh, the New York Times reporter and book author, um, who um, uh, sought to quash a subpoena um, at the uh, trial court and then at the Fourth Circuit. Um, he, he failed at the Fourth Circuit uh, in his effort to um, protect his sources. And around that time, the um, Reporters Committee and other press advocates were engaged in a dialogue with DOJ around the internal guidelines that prosecutors follow in determining whether or not uh, testimony from the press is, is necessary in any particular case. And that effort was launched uh, in um, 20, late 2013 after, uh, some of you may remember, there was a, a toll, massive toll record subpoena for, for AP uh, phone lines. And around the same time, a Fox News reporter uh, was the, um, an, named an unindicted co-conspirator um, in a case that enabled the Justice Department to obtain his, uh, his Gmails. And um, in response to that, the Obama administration, uh, because there was public outcry, uh, to, to strengthen some of its internal guidelines. And the Ryzen case was uh, moving along the court system at precisely that time. And um, although the two were not linked, there, um, uh, there was um, a resolution of the Ryzen case just around the time that the guideline revisions were announced publicly. And the Justice Department decided to go to trial in the Sterling case. It was a leaker was named Jeffrey Sterling. The government decided to go to trial without calling Ryzen. And um, you know, for us in the press advocacy world, it was seen, uh, even though the case took many, many, many years to resolve, and Jim, as a journalist, suffered because of that, because he had a, this sword hanging over him, and it made his work difficult. The a government pivoted to the right place, and they, they decided not to pursue the reporter. And they went to trial, and they got a conviction. And um, we certainly view issues around source protection as ones that that carry on from administration to administration. And as you say, despite the, the rhetoric uh, coming out of the Trump administration, its policies thus far as they relate to protection under the DOJ guidelines and um, uh, how aggressive to be in pursuing journalists as, as, as um, for, for evidence in leaks investigations has been largely consistent with where the Obama administration was. I'd like you to comment on this question. <clears throat> Should there be laws or stronger laws against misuse of government secrecy? Because whenever classified material is published, it's uh, in the spirit of whistleblowing. And if the secret material shouldn't have been secret because it was covering up something illegal, there's no crime. Right. We would love to see reform around um, anti-secrecy. You know, 
um, in DC and uh, you know since Pat Moynihan's days um, there have been clarion calls for that and um, it, it hasn't happened and at the same time the Espionage Act remains um, you know hopelessly um, vague um, it, that vagueness may in this environment end up playing to um, the benefit of the journalist because we are concerned that if the statute was revisited it's always possible that Congress might include some kind of a very specific prohibition against uh, publication of these materials by the press. Um, we also remain quite concerned about the, um, there has been a, a, a marketed uptick in the um, number of, of years that um, leakers have been sentenced to prison. Uh, the uh, uh, reality winner case involving the um, uh, uh, alleged leak to um, The Intercept, um, and then there has been a second one under the Obama administration involving an FBI agent, uh, Terry Albury. In, in both of those cases, um, the sentences were quite high if you look historically at what kinds of recommendations prosecutors have made. And so that's another trend that we are concerned about. You were speaking primarily about federal law enforcement and their sort of hands-off approach to First Amendment issues. Are there any states that seem to be more hostile to uh, press and free speech? That is an excellent question. We, you know, I can't say that we've seen uh, anything in particular um, on the prosecutorial end. There, of course, are states when it comes to freedom of information um, that are better than others, and uh, where the press is in, in offensively trying to drive. A, a piece of litigation. We, we do quite a bit of that kind of work. And of course, there are states that have a mandatory uh, fee award for requesters who prevail in uh, open records cases. And there are about r roughly 15 of those around the country. And we like to bring litigation in those cases because we can win cases and then we can get attorney's fees uh, to help support the work elsewhere. Um, from time to time, of course, you see uh, really crazy fact patterns under Section 1983 where local officials go after the press and um, sometimes they seem to hope that because they're not in a major media market um, that they can use that kind of coercion against reporters and it really is up to the reporters to bring the 1983 actions to try to vindicate their rights. And um, if there's any pattern I've seen in those cases, it is that they do tend to come in smaller markets. They tend to be from more um, sparsely populated rural areas where you see those kinds of cases rather than in larger metropolitan areas. But I've never seen uh, jurisdiction by jurisdiction or state by state any trends that I'm aware of. Interesting question. Hi there, thank you so much for being here. I just had a question regarding uh, money and speech and the idea that um, we're seeing an increasing trend of more local, um, I guess, publications and news stations being bought by large uh, national corporations that may have their own you know, in, uh, editorial slants. We're also seeing other larger publications like the Washington Post being bought by uh, Jeff Bezos, the richest man you know, in the world, and wondering as we see this kind of consolidation of the press, are we also losing some you know, local independent journalism? And if there is a way to protect that, and if there's a way also to, I guess, prevent further consolidation in like, the media market. Right. 
Well, sure. I mean, we uh, our new initiative funded by the Knight Foundation around state and local journalism is focused on the very issue you identified, that we're losing voices at the local level and that, um, and that local accountability journalism is uh, you know, perhaps one of the ways out of our current political polarization around the role of the media. That um, it, it could be that the way to bring back more trust for journalism um, is not through some of these very contentious national debates, um, but uh, more strong, fact-intensive, quality, researched local journalism that will make people feel uh, that um, the re reporters are making an impact on their daily lives. It's school board coverage or um, city council coverage, that, that, that kind of really important work. And um, at the Reporters Committee, we, we historically have not been involved in issues around media concentration or antitrust, um, which are you know, seen more as, as traditionally as commercial or, or business issues. The, um, uh, you've, of course, alluded to the purchase of the Post by Jeff Bezos and uh, the LA Times, the, the paper in Minneapolis, Time Magazine, right? There are many other really important institutions that have now been bought um, by business people, and we, we hope that that's one way that those institutions can thrive. Um, there, there have got to be some other ways, too. We do a lot of work with uh, nonprofit startups, and one of the things the Knight Foundation is doing in this new state and local initiative is provide more money for an organization called the Institute for Nonprofit News. It's a national group that tries to offer infrastructure support for these kinds of startups at the state and local level. Many times they have terrific newsrooms because a legacy organization has shrunk and left uh, quality reporters uh, looking for someplace else to do their work. And I hope that the new investment in INN will help uh, some of these uh, smaller startups thrive. But um, the, uh, and I'll just leave with this anecdote, Senator Schumer came to the museum a couple weeks ago, or I guess it's been a few months now, and spoke um, about the state of media and lamented the loss of all of these upstate New York papers. They've shriveled into nothing in some cases. And um, he got to the end of the speech and said, I wish I had a solution. I wish there was something we in Congress could do. Um, I wish there was some marketplace solution that was readily available. But at the end of the evening, he didn't have an answer either. Um, and so um, we really hope that um, uh, somehow some flowers will bloom around the country in a really tough climate for these smaller organizations. I'm asking this question because my son's a journalist and it's, uh, there's selfish reasons for asking it. With the change in conventional journalism that we with the older people understand, and in particular even in our community where we only have a paper that's actually has home delivery four times a week. Uh, has, I first want to know what your feelings is as to the state of journalism, but more important to the discussion you're talking about, has your job become changed because we have these electronic journalism and anybody, today anybody can be a journalist and, <coughs> and report something on that. And I wonder what you're doing with your organization is doing with respect to that. Well, I'll take the second question first. We, we as an organization are extremely expansive in how we view the craft and the function of journalism. And 
that question, who is a journalist, um, can create a lot of heartburn out there. And we just, you know, maybe we've just taken enough antiacids through the years. I don't know. We, it just, you know, we, we look at what, what, what are you doing? Are you gathering information? Uh, and, and do you intend to provide it to the public? And um, we, in fact, argued with the Justice Department that it did not need to include a definition of who a journalist is when it revisited the media subpoena guidelines. Um, I, we just said, you'll know it. You'll see it. You know, you'll, you'll, it won't be hard for you to figure out. And um, I think that is the right way to go. I think to craft a, de a definitional structure around journalism today is too daunting um, for any of us. And so we embrace it. We uh, support um, people out there doing this work from the smallest startup to the largest newsroom. And I do think that it is a very exciting time to be in journalism. If you have a child you mentioned who's in the field, I would never deter a younger person from going into it. Um, I just think that the career path is not nearly as predictable as it obviously once was. And for me, having worked, for example, at David Broder, who was part of that generation that started out in a smaller market. Um, he was at the Bloomington Pentagraph, Pentagraph as a young uh, reporter, and then to the Washington Star, and then to the Washington Post. And that kind of career path where you've been in three newsrooms over a lifetime is almost unheard of today. And you meet so many terrific people who by the age of 30 have been eight or nine different, different places. And I, I think that's what you can expect, but I think the work is as rewarding and challenging as ever. So um, building or taking a bit of the theme from that question and the change in who is can be considered a journalist. I'm wondering if you can comment on whether libel protections may be too strong in some cases now. I'm thinking in particular of individuals like James O'Keefe and Jacob Wohl, who publish either willfully deceptive or false information, but who have seemingly escaped any sort of legal punishment for these actions. <coughs> well, the, the, the precedent that's there is not gonna protect someone um, who uh, you know, falls outside New York Times style defenses. I mean, if, if you um, willfully publish an untruth uh, or if you act in deliberate disregard of uh, information that's available to you, uh, you're aware of, um, that would prove your reporting to be inaccurate, um, whether you're a, a, you know, a guy with a video camera hitched to his, his uh, hip or a journalist in a larger newsroom, um, you won't be protected under the law. It is an interesting question as to whether the climate, though, out there is conducive to bringing litigation against someone like that. And it, you know, it could very well be that there's a reluctance because some of those examples you gave kind of fall right into the center of our hot cauldron of, of politics today. And it could be that the, um, the plaintiffs, who, the people who would be the plaintiffs in those cases decide it just isn't worth it. Um, and that, that has to do with a bunch of other factors other than the law. I will mention I live very close in Washington, D.C. Um, to the pizza joint um, that became uh, Pizza Gate uh, just a few blocks from my house. And so I was filling up my gas tank one day to find six police cars on Connecticut Avenue. Um, and um, 
I will tell you there were some discussions I know uh, of the owners of the restaurant um, around the possibility of bringing uh, a libel suit. Um, and, and they were talking to people who <clears throat> are traditionally defense people. You may know that in our area of the law, there's been a long time kind of unspoken code that people who defend news organizations don't, don't bring plaintiff cases. And um, we're unusual that way as a bar that we are, um, that we've had unwritten rules like that for some time. And, um, and they were talking to lawyers who were typically defense side lawyers about possibly bringing a case. And I think given the, you know, some of the flagrant untruths around that story that legally it might have been a strong case. But then you have questions around what are the damages and what would we have to go through to bring that case and would it just keep the flames alive of this uh, bogus uh, allegation and someone may decide it's not worth it for that reason. And, and I agree with you that it, that is part of the picture too. Well, I'm gonna build on that then. My question is, as because uh, there's so much hate speech and uh, calls to even violence that have seemed to have fueled people doing the shootings like at the synagogues and the mosques. Is there any protection to, I mean, I know they, you know, there's like the dark web and everything, but is there a way of having some kind of limitation on what even that hateful, violent <coughs> speech and how we could stop that or should we even try to curtail that at all? Right, um, hard not to be confronted with this question today, right? And um, at RCFP, you know, we have not been as engaged on, the, on that set of issues as some other organizations are. And, um, and this may not make you particularly happy about me or about us, but we would tend to be pretty cautious about any efforts to, to regulate, you know, that, that kind of speech because of the concern that in the hands of a regulatory body or um, a regulatory regime that we would go, we would go too far. But um, there are a number of organizations that work with the tech platforms in trying to figure out if there is some way to um, let the market, for lack of a better phrase, uh, help improve the discourse. It doesn't feel right now like that's happening. Um, and um, you know, I'm sure that this is an issue that unfortunately is going to be with us for some time, but it just is not one that the journalism organizations tend to work on. Our next question comes from Twitter. Um, Will Tarter wants to know, in cities across the country, the inability to access open records and public info in a timely manner has come under scrutiny. What advice would you give to local journalists and citizens about engaging public entities and to local governments that provide that information? First thing, call us. We do, we do a lot of work in that area and we're pro bono. Um, and um, this has become a, a major, major part of our docket at the Reporters Committee is working with people at the state and local level on public records requests. And it is a, a sad but undeniable truth that too often a citizen or a journalist needs a lawyer to rattle the cage to make something happen. That a request goes in, it is ignored, uh, you try to follow up, it's ignored, and um, only when a lawyer's letter arrives uh, 
this happens with far too much frequency, does something to start to happen. And so I would suggest um, calling our hotline or emailing us, and we can offer some advice. Okay, and we have another one from Twitter. What kind of support are you providing press freedom efforts in other nations, particularly in European nations where democracy is either nascent or struggling? We're a domestic organization, but we have started to do a bit of work overseas. There's just a huge vacuum uh, when it comes to overseas legal protection for reporters. There are organizations like the Committee to Protect Journalists that do great advocacy work around safety and security but uh, Reporters Without Borders does that as well, but there's no organization that provides the kind of legal support that we do. And so we're starting to do a bit more, and um, in fact, just coming up quite soon, um, later this month or early June, we will be submitting an amicus brief in a court in Northern Ireland um, where some documentary film journalists um, are in danger of uh, being forced to reveal confidential information, and we are supporting them with an, uh, an amicus letter. Hi, thank you so much for being here. Uh, my question to you is really about the journalist community in terms of efforts that you or other organizations take to organize and to galvanize journalists to make sure that they are interested and that they are coming forward to help in the advocacy work that you're doing. That is just a great question and it is a part of our work that is increasingly important. And I'll be honest, a part that we ignored for a long time. I mean, as a lawyer's organization, you know, we worked on our briefs and we filed in, in, in court, and we didn't have a very sophisticated communications operation or a sophisticated outreach effort to newsrooms. And a part of our big build-out under the Knight Foundation grant is directed exactly at that issue about um, <coughs> trying um, to recognizing that our audience is not just the judges and the legislatures um, and uh, the in-house lawyers of the news organizations, but that we need to do a much better job engaging with the public, um, and in marketing who we are and what we do to journalists so that more journalists participate in, in the community efforts, the collective efforts around protecting press freedom. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thank you. That's great. That's great. Today at the City Club, we've been celebrating 2019 Law Day with Bruce Brown, Executive Director of the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. Our annual Law Day Forum is presented in collaboration with the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association. Our community partner for today's forum is the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, and our hospitality partner is the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. We appreciate the partnership of all of those organizations. Additionally, we welcome guests at a table hosted by the Cleveland Foundation, as well as the student winner of the Hope and Stanley Edelstein Free Speech Essay Contest. Thanks to all of you for being with us today. That brings us to the end of our program. Thank you very much, Bruce. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Our forum is adjourned. Yeah, that was great. Thank you so much. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.